Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. This has been my birthday week. I had my birthday last week and had a great time around that birthday birding. Uh, On my birthday, September 2nd, uh, it was rocking at Dune Peninsula Park here in Tacoma. Helps that a lot of the local talent was down there that day. And I had planned to leave at uh, 2 p.m. or actually a little after 12.30 to head out on a trip to the coast for a pelagic trip on the 3rd and had uh, arrangements for Paul Barney to meet me at my house. We're going to pick up Ken Brown partway down and head on down there. But around 11 o'clock, uh, a text on our group, uh, group me text chain came through that Will Brooks had a long-tailed Jaeger at Dune. And I thought, oh boy, I saw that a couple days ago, but didn't get a great look. And I thought, oh, I'm kind of in a hurry. Got to have lunch, finish packing. I'll just skip it. Then a couple minutes rolled by and I thought, what the heck? go for it. Uh, so I grabbed Marion and we headed on down to Doom Peninsula to, for you know half an hour, 45 minutes that I could spare to see if I could see this long-tailed Jaeger. Well, I get there and they weren't seeing the Jaeger anymore, but they had common turns. Three common turns were perched on a little log way the heck out in the, in the sound. Uh, and I got to look at those and, and good enough to at least I could tell there were small turns. And when they started uh, flying around, Will had good looks and was confident they were common turns. So I added common turns to my county list. And then Heather Balish, who was a previous guest on the show, saw a, a dark bird skimming over the water way, way, way the heck out. Uh, and sure enough, a shearwater uh, was flying down the, the passage between Dash Point and Vashon Island. I'm talking three, four miles out, way, way far out. Uh, and we follow this uh, shearwater all the way down until it circles in front of us going between Vashon Island and Dune, maybe only three quarters of a mile out uh, and uh, follow that bird and it was clearly a sooty shearwater or short-tailed shearwater. It was hard to tell the difference but uh, we got pretty good looks at it and it didn't have much white wing flash under the wings and it looked small and it kind of had the stiffer wing beats of a short-tailed and uh, both Charlie Wright and Will Brooks were confident in, in short-tailed shearwater ID and I was confident I saw the bird really well uh, and so was able to take that as a short-tailed shearwater uh, as a first county bird for me. Actually, my first shearwater of any type, tube nose of any type in Pierce County. So that was really cool. So I got two first of the year county birds and a county lifer on my birthday and came back, got a quick lunch and headed to the coast. So picked up Paul. Paul met me at the house. We picked up Ken. We headed for the coast and did a little birding around the coast on the uh, Thursday afternoon before heading out on the pelagic trip Friday. Uh, there was a there was a uh, bar-tailed godwit with a flock of maybe a thousand or so uh, marble godwits at the Westport Marina. We got terrific looks of those. Maybe my best look ever at a bar-tailed godwit because we walked out on the, the bridge uh, at the marina and it was on the beach right underneath us, maybe oh, 25, 30 feet away. Just fabulous looks at that. And and got really enjoyed that. And there was a willet there, which I think, I haven't checked yet, but I think was a county first bird. Willets normally are down in Pacific County, just south of Grace Harbor County in the winter. And uh, there's been one that's been hanging out with the with the Marble Godwits up at uh, up at uh, Westport. So got a chance to look at that. Then went over to West Haven State Park, just also in Westport, and just watched the shearwater streaming by. I counted for counted a thousand shearwaters as they as they streamed by, counting by hundreds, and it took one minute and fifty six seconds for a thousand shearwaters to fly by the mouth of Grace Harbor. Uh, so just 
crazy numbers of shearwaters just off coast, which led promise for the pelagic trip the next day. Uh, so we got up early and got on the boat. It was really a special trip. I had had a pelagic trip planned for a week or two ago, but it got canceled for weather and I didn't have a makeup. And I thought I wasn't going to get another pelagic trip in for the second year in a row. COVID sort of canceled the whole thing last year. But this year, uh, with immunization status and, and masks and stuff, we were able to get out on the boat. Uh, and so I uh, got on the boat, and we got there, and it was fogged in, very, very foggy. All morning we battled fog uh, just over the water, making visibility really poor. Uh, so we got out through the, the bar at West Point. It's a little bit bumpy, but not too bad. And with my meclizine recipe I use, I didn't get seasick. And so we got out over the bar and rode out and rode and rode and rode, and visibility was maybe, maybe 30, 50 meters. It was just terrible. And so all the way out, we didn't see a whole heck of a lot. We got a great look at a Palmer and Jaeger that flew by the boat. Uh, but other than that, not too much. The usual city shearwaters and a lot of short-tailed shearwaters. Uh, unusual numbers of short-tailed this year. Uh, we think there must be something going on in the Bering Sea. The birds down here look good. They're, they've gone through molt. They're in fresh feathers. They look well-nourished, but they just usually are more up towards Alaska than they are down here at this time of year. We usually get one or three on a trip, but we had hundreds this trip, and the last trip they had hundreds also. So very unusual to have that number of short-tailed shearwaters down here. But it was kind of a treat to really get to study them and look them over on the boat. Uh, so we got out to uh, a shrimping boat. We got a lot of birds there, uh, and that was a treat. But still, visibility was poor. We continue out to the continental shelf uh, where we set up a slick, and it was still foggy, and we sat there for half an hour or so, and just nothing came into the slick. Usually they put some, some fish oil and some beef suet in the water, and the smell and visual attraction brings in a flock of birds, but the, the theory was that there was no visual attraction because the fog was terrible, and it wasn't very windy, so the smell didn't travel very far, and we just got almost nothing at the slick. We did get our only long-tailed Jaeger of the trip came flying by the boat. So we did add a bird at the slick, so it wasn't completely, as Bill Twice said, it wasn't completely uh, a bust, but not exactly exciting. Uh, so we headed back in, went by the same shrimp boat, but by then, the sun had come out and the fog had cleared, maybe around noon, and at the boat, it was just a spectacular show with the shrimp boat on the way back in. Had thousands and thousands of birds, pink-footed shearwaters by the thousands, uh, short-tailed shearwaters, a good number of black-footed albatross. We had great looks at flesh-footed shearwater, which is a tough bird on this trip. Had a few storm petrels, uh, nice looks at a buller shearwater. We only got one buller shearwater, but it was very cooperative. It sat on the water, and we just got great looks at it. Actually, I'll put up a, a blog post on the on the Bird Banner website under Ed's Birding Notes. You can check that out if you like to see a lot of photos and more description of the plaget trip. But we finished the plaget trip. On the way in, the weather was great, uh, and was really nice. This trip was a special uh, trip. Uh, Brian Pendleton, who's a, a birding friend and local birder who has a degenerative neurologic disability and is really having a hard time uh, you know, using his extremities is really in a wheelchair at this point, had set up this trip sort of as a special pelagic trip for him and invited a bunch of friends along. Uh, and I, I got to, I was really privileged to get to go on that trip. So that was really special. It's nice to see Brian. I hadn't seen him in a while. And he is an extraordinary birder and just got on all the birds, kind of crazy how good he is. Anyway, we had a really nice trip and I headed home. 
uh, and so have had a great uh, pelagic birding experience, some from terra firma at dunes and some on a boat out of Westport with Westport Seabirds, but had a great experience. So that was a really good birthday treat. The other thing I got to do this week was talk with Mason Marone. Mason is my guest on this episode. Mason is a, uh, starting his junior year at WSU, is doing research and is a a very avid birder. He's only been birding about three years, but has become quite accomplished and was really fun to have on the podcast today. So help me welcome Mason Marone to the Bird Banner Podcast. Mason, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for doing this with me today. Thanks for uh, bringing me on. Very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, now, you're a student at WSU, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. What year are you in school there? I'm a junior. Junior, so you finished two years, two, two to go, more or less. Yeah, we just started this week, actually. Okay, so WSU's already started. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know that you're a photographer as well as a birder. Uh, I looked at your website. You've got the uh, Mason Marone photographer bird site on myportfolio.com and do a lot of photography. Tell me about uh, how you got started in birding and how photography played a role and kind of how, tell me your birding slash photography story. Right. Well, it's actually kind of a funny story because a lot of people have like a spark bird, um, mm -hmm. you know, like they say like, oh, this one bird really got me into birding. For me, I don't really have one bird. Um, I actually got into birding through a really weird train of things. Um, so actually a couple of years back before I got into birding, uh, I was in Hawaii with my family and I was sitting on the beach with my parents and they said, okay, we're going to go walk down the beach and just go look around. We'll be back in like 15 minutes. So about 30 minutes later, uh, I was getting really bored sitting in this beach chair, you know, watching all the stuff and I didn't really know where they had gone. So I was like, okay, I need to find something to do. And I looked in our bag and my dad had his old DSLR in the bag. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'll take that out and I'll just take pictures of whatever. Cause I'm, you know, I'm fidgeting and I'm trying to find something to pass the time. And so, you know, I was taking pictures of shells on the beach and people walking by and actually a red crested cardinal landed in front of me. I was like, okay, I'll take a picture of that. Uh, there was a, I think it's a warbling white eye now behind me on the tree, took a picture of that. And I was just kind of, you know, taking pictures around that really, at that time, I hadn't really gotten interested in birds, but I did start to build an interest in, in photography off of that. So when my parents got back, I was like, you know, hey, dad, can I use this camera and take more pictures? And he's sure. So I took it with me. And then, you know, we came back home and uh, I started going to Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle and taking pictures there. And I really liked going to the aviary. I just kind of not directly related to the birds, but just because I felt like the, the better pictures came from there. And one day I was in this big group chat for actually for high school robotics uh, with it's just like a global chat. So it's got people all over the world. And I was talking about going to the zoo and somebody's like, oh, well, you know, show us some of the pictures that you took. So I sent some of the pictures that I took that day of birds. And this other guy comes in and he starts sending his own pictures of birds. And we were talking back and forth about it. And he goes, well, I have this this other chat that's dedicated to, you know, young birders were called people that are interested in birds you should check it out and, and see if it interests you. I was like, sure, I'll give it a look and I'll see, you know, what people are talking about. And I joined that chat and all these, there were tons of people in there, like 60, 70 people that were all talking, all young birders across the U S and some outside of the U S talking about birds. And so I kind of started to learn about it from them. Um, and growing up as a kid, I, I always played Pokemon, which I don't know if you, how much you know about Pokemon. 
No, but I have a young. Ch- I have children who grew up in the in the beginning of Pokemon when it first right. began. Oh, they collected little buttons. And- yeah. So, so for all the games since the beginning, there's this thing called the Pokedex, which is basically it's like an encyclopedia for all the Pokemon in the game, and you have to go to different routes in the game to find the Pokemon. And I always enjoyed that as a kid, and I kind of had left that behind. But when I came into birding, I really found that there was kind of a similarity with birds, where you know, I really want to see all these birds, just like I used to, you know, want to catch all the Pokemon and they're all in different areas, but I can see a list. Uh, you know, I used Merlin, the app, and you could see what it suggested. It's like, okay, these are the most common birds in your area. It's like, I want to find these, but they're all in different habitats. So I'm going to have to go around and find all these birds in different places. And that really, I think, gave me the spark to kind of keep, you know, obviously I kept doing photography, but kind of put that aside a little bit and really dive into birding and, and try to go look around for all these different species and now at, at this point it's it's actually almost three years it'll be three years in october of this year since i started birding but of course i've already got like almost all the species in in washington it it gets to uh, the point where i go on ebird to see what my most commonly observed missed species are and swallowtail gull is up there as one of the top ones so it's <laughs> yeah well, to good luck point. with that yeah <laughs> But yeah, that definitely um, kicked it off for me. I kept doing photography. Uh, like you said, I have my my website. Uh, and then usually what I do is I post on Instagram. I have um, Mason Marin Photography is my handle there as well. And that also automatically uploads to Facebook. Um, so that's usually where I kind of keep doing that. And I'll do stuff that isn't birds as well. Since I, I study wildlife as a whole. I mean, obviously, I really love birds especially. But I think recently, like for World Snake Day, I shared a picture of a, a rattlesnake and stuff. So... Just kind of keep it updated there. Very cool. Uh, actually, uh, I you know I kind of know about you sort of because you're the recipient of the WASP Washington Ornithological Society Young Birder Award for this past year, and uh, I was you know communicating with you about getting the award presented at the WASP conference, which isn't happening because of COVID, uh, and that's been a little bit of a roundabout thing. Uh, so I know th- I know that you're somehow studying some sort of natural sciences, biology, or something at WSU, and you won this uh, won this award from WASP. What are you studying? So I actually, uh, there's a few different research projects that I'm working on right now, but this specific one that uh, the award is correlated with is this really cool project with. Um, gray crown rosy finch and some other rosy finch species, their diets. So actually there was a professor at Washington State University who for the past, I think it was started 60 years ago, uh, started collecting rosy finch and, and kind of preparing them so that their digestive tracts could still be examined. And he collected them for a really long time and then he just kind of stopped. Um, and so we had all these specimens that went to the Connor Museum, which is the uh, Washington State University Museum. And they just kind of sat there because really nobody had done anything with them. And it's this huge, you know, wealth of, of information going back all these years and nobody was interacting with them. And actually, when I came in as a freshman, I went to the Connor Museum and talked to some of the people that were working there about my interest in participating in research. And one of them told me about these specimens. I was like, do you want to do anything with these, you know, maybe genetic work or something? And really, I just kind of went, I don't know how to do that. Um, Because I was, I mean, I was just coming in as a freshman, but so I kind of forgot about that as well. Um, And then one of my friends who you've actually had him on the podcast before, Neil Paprocki, he mentioned this to me, apparently a bunch of, a mix of graduate students and and master's students and PhD students had kind of all picked this up at once and looked at this um, 
and and said this is really interesting and we should we should work on this and so he asked me you know would you like to be involved in this project and and participate and help you know lead where we're going and and help do the work and I was like of course absolutely I would love to do that um so we're really excited to kind of get started on it actually our plan is to start uh dissecting next week so we'll really be getting soon I'm really looking forward to what this might you know show as we get through this very cool. Hard to believe that Rosie Finch guts didn't get examined all right away. <laughs> Who would think they'd want to examine 60 year old Finch guts? But uh, anyway, good for you. Do you have any idea what that will involve? Will, will you be just dissecting these and looking to see what's inside? How will you figure out what it is? It can't be like fresh. So um, most of the specimens were preserved uh, and there was a special like preservation series done to try and preserve the guts. Uh, I know that the first thing I have to do is watch a bunch of safety training videos and all the, on, you know, how to use a scalpel and how to basically not ingest a ton of ethanol, which I'm pretty sure I could figure it on my own, but I've got to watch all this stuff to kind of know how to interact with all the preser preservatives and, and that kind of uh, materials. But one of the things that we have been talking about is we really don't know what we're in for here. Um, we know that some of the older specimens uh, just due to not really being sealed well enough to last the whole 60 years, have lost a lot of the alcohol or almost all the alcohol. So those might not be usable. We really hope they are, um, but it's kind of, we'll find out when we get there. Uh, our our ideal outcome is all the specimens, or at least most of them are usable and they all have significant insects or seeds or whatever in their gut that we can look at. Uh, there is a chance, uh, as I, one of the people working on the project mentioned to me this morning, that we'll just cut a bunch open and then we'll have just goop, uh, as he called it, which is, you know, just like a bunch of mess. And at that point, we'll have to figure it out as we go. Ideally, I mean, we're pretty sure there's not going to be like whole intact insects in there. Um, but we have talked a bit about possibly doing DNA barcoding on some of the remains if they're still intact enough. And then worst case scenario, even not even that bad really, but worst case scenario, we can still probably review um, like animal content versus plant content, which mm -hmm. is a good thing we really, one of the big things that we can look at here is the effects on, of climate change over the time on their diet. And actually this is one of the things that I get to do that isn't just dissection is I get to, since I'm part of the project also, I can kind of, as I'm working with this, pitch new ideas. Oh, this would be really cool to help us show this. Maybe we can find a correlation between one thing or the other. So one of the things that I suggested uh, that we should look at is we should look at the comparison between how many seeds are being consumed versus how much um, insect matter is being consumed. Because obviously the insect populations have gone down over the years. Uh, one of the famous studies over insect populations, I believe, is the car windshield study, where they just basically noted that less and less bugs were being smashed on car windshields within a certain distance. And that kind of emphasized that there was lower density of them. So in theory, we should see over the years that seed content goes up while insect content goes down because seeds are still available, whereas insects are not. Also, one of the things we'd like to look at is are there invasive plants, uh, their seeds showing up after a certain point or because alpine zones are very temperature controlled and obviously lower elevation plants will be creeping up on them as, as things get hotter, uh, we might start to see at some point through the timeline seeds of plants that are usually found at lower elevations showing up more and more because they've started to grow higher and higher because it's warmer. So really there's a lot of possibility in this. And I really would like to see, you know, what we can do with it. Obviously it depends on the quality of what we have, but I think no matter what, we still have enough to really 
get something interesting about this, not just in terms of directly related to the birds, but like I said, directly related to climate change and environmental change as a whole, which will be really cool. Something, I don't know if this is going to play a role, but I know that Peter Wimberger and is fascinated with these uh, ice ice worms. Uh, I think it's purple-headed ice worms or something like that, that that grow in the glaciers around Mount Rainier, at least, and that rosy finches seem to feast on. And I think uh, how many of those are around has a lot to do with the time of day. I think they come out at like dusk because they can't take direct sunlight and they can't freeze and all these things about they're out at some times a day and not others. Do you have like really good information about what time of day these birds were collected? I'm actually not sure on that front if we have time of day. I'm I'm pretty confident we have down to I, I'm I'm pretty sure we have day and I also believe we have like general conditions. Like mm-hmm. was it cold and windy or really warm and sunny? I'm not sure if we have time of day, mostly because you know, 60 years ago, that might not have been such an easy thing to record while at the top of Mount Rainier, um, just obviously just given the conditions and, and the equipment yeah. available. I would, you know, I would like to see something like that. And I'm sure, you know, maybe just we could do the inverse, right? I mean, if we know for a fact that these worms are out and more active during a certain time of day, and we dissect, you know, one bird's gotten, it has a ton of them versus one has, has none, we might be able to infer that maybe that first bird with a, with a lot of those worms was eating more during the day. One yeah. of the other things, of course, with that is we can definitely see climate change with that as snow melts, right? Obviously there's not going to be ice worms where there's no ice. So sure. we could probably see less of those over time. Those good thoughts. I was just curious. I know, I know Peter would find a way to get ice worms into the study somehow. Yeah, I, I bet I, every, a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of it also is that everyone has kind of their own theories and, and it's kind of niche for everyone based on their own experience. So I bet that he's thinking about that as we're going through this. Is this going to be a, a independent study course in addition to a job or, or is it uh, just going to be a side job? So it's kind of, uh, a mix of different things. It's it's being handled. I believe there is like a program that the university houses for things like this, where it's not directly considered a job under the university, but it does have a, a sort of system that works similarly. Um, I know, like you said before, uh, I did win the award, which is really exciting. Um, uh, and I know that's that's funding going towards this. And I believe after that funding has has reached its end, basically in terms of hours that it accounts for, mm-hmm. uh, then it goes over to funding from the Connor Museum, uh, from the university to account for the remaining hours. So okay. they have an estimate for how many hours uh, I'll be working in a week. And of course, I could really just sit in the lab and dissect birds in all the free time that I have. But I'm not really sure that I I'm in any rush to do that or something like that. So yeah, it's I'm I'm really looking forward to it overall for sure though. Well, it sounds cool. Do you have much experience with uh, gray crowned rosy finches here in Washington? It's it's funny that you ask that. I actually don't. I have seen them. Um, Steptoe Butte in Whitman County is really the go-to spot for them. It's kind okay. of uh, out here. It's kind of like certain spots are oasis, uh, mm-hmm. oasis of for birds because most of the area is just wheat fields. So a- anything that was unaffected is basically where you go to find the best birds. And so for sure, the buttes are really good. I know Kamek Butte does get some, but really the, the very top part of Steptoe, it gets really rocky and, and really ideal Great Crown Rosie Finch habitat. Um, and not last winter, but the previous one, uh, I think we had like a flock of 200 or 300, which is really amazing to see. Uh, we went up the following weekend, my, my friend from University of Idaho, his name is Ben. 
we went up the following weekend to see if the flock was still there and we found a single rosy finch. <laughs> uh, it was sitting in the parking lot, which led to one of my favorite photos that, of, of me that's ever been taken, which is me laying down in the middle of a parking lot uh, in my flammulated owl hoodie with a great crown rosy finch, like eight feet in front of me, just kind of sitting there and munching on grass, which was really cool. But other than that, I've seen some at, at Rainier, um, but I really haven't had much, you know, up close experience with them aside from the parking lot. So this will be pretty cool, I think. Well, you'll have to send me a link to that photo. I'll put it in the uh, blog post that I put up associated so people can get a picture of Mason Marone laying on his belly in a parking lot. Uh, were you taking a, do you have a camera taking a picture? Yeah, I've got, picture? I'm laying down with my camera and it, it was pretty fun. Totally nerding out, totally yeah, nerding out in a parking lot. Yeah, the, very well, good. The, the best part was the Rosie Finch was moving in kind of circles around the parking lot. So I laid down predictively hope and it, hoping that it would go right. for me and it did it went right in front of me and then i was laying there getting some pictures of it and then this car pulled up and i was laying <laughs> right in the middle of where the cars drive up into the parking lot it's like okay i gotta get up or i'm about to be run over and i'm like is it worth it is it worth it to get a better picture and get hit by a car no probably not yeah the, the negative expected value on that bat yes that's what i would say good uh Mason, what is your major? What are you planning on majoring in at WSU? So my major is wildlife ecology and conservation. And then I also have a minor in forestry. And I am hoping on setting up a minor in cell biology and genetics, uh, which is, I won't be, you know, I'll be clear about it. It's mostly because that's where most of the money is in, in terms of uh, wild directly related to wildlife research these days. Uh, I really like to travel and for different places. So I think that, you know, setting myself up to, maybe get a, a more high, a higher paying job that still involves wildlife is a, is a big thing for me. I think that sounds like a wise choice. Mason, have you had much for a chance to travel for birding yet? Surprisingly, no. I mean, the unfortunate bit is that I actually planned a lot of trips right when COVID hit that I had planned out for the rest of the year. And so we had to very sadly cancel them one by one as the, you know, the quarantine lasted longer and longer. I have some regrets from pre-birding days of places I've been. I mean, I used to live uh, in Connecticut and San Diego and, and stuff like that. So I have a distinct memory of greater roadrunner from San Diego, but I don't have a date, so I haven't counted it. And no. I actually went to Costa Rica the year before I started birding. Um, and I have photos of two birds. Uh, they are great-tailed grackle and turkey vulture. So not exactly <laughs> the most exotic species. But I am actually planning on going back this December, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully, as long as conditions permit. And this is kind of like my revenge on my past self for missing so many species. I'm just going to try to get as much as possible. Very cool. What's your draw to Costa Rica? My daughter lives in Costa Rica, so I was just curious. It, I mean, it's one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, which is really cool. And having been there before... I think that like, almost like I said, like part of his revenge on my past self, because I have memories of some of the areas and I can remember how biodiverse it was. And I remember, you know, seeing howler monkeys and, and capuchins and stuff like that. But I, now I'm thinking about, okay, well, I didn't really have any strengths in wildlife, you know, as a birder over time, you start to kind of be fine tuned to subtle noises and moves of twigs and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm just, I was thinking about like, I could see everything, right? Like I could, I could go back and pick out so many things I didn't see before. And it's actually, it's, it's going to be a family trip. I'm going with my, my parents and possibly my sister, but it's kind of like a family trip that I will capitalize very heavily on. I know that my parents will definitely want to spend some time by the pool and actually a birder named Andrew Simon, who I met through Facebook, 
stayed at the same hotel that I will be staying at. And he had a map of all of the spots that he marked out of all of the best birds. And so he, I talked to him and he sent it to me and he's like, as soon as they're like relaxed and they close their eyes, you go here, like go straight here. This is where Scarlet <laughs> Macaw is, you know, this is where all the Kingfishers are. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll spend time with my family, of course, but it's in Costa Rica. I mean, really, yeah. you could be sitting at a restaurant and get 10 lifers just out the window. So it could be good birding at the pool. I, I've uh, been to some pools in Costa Rica with pretty nice birds, you know, fiery billed aracari and a yellow billed toucan just kind of sitting over the pool yeah. watching and, uh, you know, woodpeckers flying in, you know, lineated woodpecker coming in and doing their little tap tap thing. Very cool. So uh, you, you'll find birds. You can't not find birds. Right, exactly. It, it's really good. Uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to get out a little bit to some uh, more uh, more productive places, but it doesn't matter where you go. They'll be yeah, I've argued for one birding day. So I get one day where I can just bird all day. So that's Very cool. that's my, my golden ticket right there. I got to make it count. Good for you. Well, let's hope that trip comes through. It's hard to imagine. You've been a birder for three years. Literally half of your birding life has been during a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> that is a sad thought. Uh. <laughs> well, I also spent the entirety of last year in Pullman without a car. Uh, so mm -hmm. birding Pullman, is it decent? Sure. Would I advertise it to people visiting the state? Probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, one upside is we do get the most blue jays in the state during winter they all they all come down to the uh, community gardens and they're very loud which i was very happy to hear and and see them during the beginning of winter and then when i started looking for common red pole not so much because i couldn't hear anything except the blue jays but uh, <laughs> being stuck here definitely definitely uh put into and uh, kind of burning into a new perspective for me on one how much you can appreciate certain species that you see all the time but two also how great it is to see other birds, which is one of the things that really motivated me to travel as well. Very cool. Uh, so you, I've uh, spent only a little bit of time. WSU's in Whitman County, isn't it? Yeah, it's down. Whitman? It's about 15 minutes from the border. Uh, so Moscow's right over the border. Right. Yeah. I uh, Whitman County, I'm a county birder, you know, in Washington, trying to get as many species in each county as I can. Not a big time county birder, but I'm working on it. And Whitman is my lowest county uh, total. And, and I went out last winter, I was in Spokane, and said, well, we'll drop down to Whitman County. And uh, my girlfriend, Mary and I were there. And it was just a tear. It was a blizzard of a day. It was just a wickedly bad day. But I thought, you know, I had a, my Subaru. I can get around. I was driving here and there. We burned around WSU a little bit and went to the community gardens and I'm looking for a blue jay. Couldn't find a blue jay. Uh, but uh, on the way, went was hoping to go to Steptoe Butte and it was closed for snow. You couldn't get in. I'm like, oh, oh where? Anyway, tell me about birding Steptoe Butte. That's a place I've... Uh, I hear about it. it. Sounds like it could be pretty cool birding. What's it's it like? Definitely, it's awesome. Um, first thing, uh, some advice when it's in winter like that and the gates close, you mm -hmm. gotta, you know, pull your boots up and prepare for a long walk. You can still get to the top. You just gotta oh, walk okay. all the way up. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it would have been a life, life, uh, death-defying act to yeah, do the day I was there. It was pretty wicked. It's definitely a, a, a journey to get up there, but I, I, I've personally never gone all the way, but I know Peter Olsoy and Katie Sorensen, who used to live in the area, they had made that trip a couple of times. And it is apparently very, very rewarding to be at the top in the dead of winter, uh, just because of all the boreal species that hang out up there. But Steptoe Butte is kind of, I usually break it into three sections. So there's the, the 
first parking lot section, which is kind of this apple orchard area. And there's just various planted trees and native trees around the area. And you have this little section of shrubs. So it's, it's usually the best for passerines and, you know, sparrows, especially in the summer, you'll get lots of the, the breeding sparrows out in the shrubby area, flycatchers as well. And then as you start to move up, one of the faces is all ponderosa pine. Uh, so it's kind of like a double layered ponderosa pine forest. And that's, that's really good. You get a lot of rarities um, in there, especially Lewis's woodpecker will be in there. Stellar Shea is there, which of course isn't a rarity in the other half of the state, but over here, it's a really good bird. And then beyond that, uh, outside, as you kind of go up, it's just all kind of rocky faces. There is this one area, which uh, some of my friends and I refer to as the rock run pit, which is basically just this big, you know, dip in the ground, a huge pit that's kind of got all these rock walls around it. And at the every, every, basically every fall, there's always rock runs just all around the lip of the pit kind of singing their hearts out. And so cool. that's, that's where it got its name is because we, we pulled up on it one of our first times burning there and there were like four or five rock runs on each side of it. Um, but otherwise, as you go up, it's kind of all rocks. So it'll start to, you know, fade out in terms of like active birds. Uh, but you will still get junco and stuff up there. And then in the winter, great crown rosy finches all over those rocks. Uh, at the top, the parking lot is really good for hawk watching because you're so high up. And you also, I mean, you see some crazy stuff up there. I went up there and got swans flying over. And because of how high up they were basically at eye level, like, you know, flying in migration, which was crazy. Um, you'll find pipits up there in the, in the parking lot during warbler migration, warblers will land on the, the parking posts in, in between the spots, which is really cool. It's overall, it's a really great spot, uh, for birding and say that in Kamiak, um, but Steptoe does go a bit higher than Kamiak and it offers that more exposed rocky area, which definitely adds to the species count overall for that spot. Where else in Whitman do you like to go first? For, before that, tell me about birding on campus. What is birding at WSU like? Birding on campus is a pain, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. You really have to either drive around a lot or take a bus. I prefer to take the bus, one, because it doesn't cost me any gas money, and two, because obviously it's a bit more eco-friendly, though during the pandemic, I'm not so sure that it was because I was usually the only person on the bus. Um, but there are a few spots in Pullman. The community gardens are really good. Uh, they, they definitely have their seasons, summer and, and winter. And in fall, they can get they can get migrants. Um, last fall, we had northern mockingbird there, which is really good. Uh, but they kind of once these once the sunflowers really start to die, that's when it slows down. I'm actually really looking forward to this coming week because that's usually like peak hummingbird time there. Uh, so I'm really excited to get out there. I've gotten some really good photos in the past of black chinned and calliope out there. You also in the winter, that's when you get all the finches coming in. So you'll pick out flocks that have pine siskin, lesser goldfinch, American goldfinch, house finch, and common red pole. Actually, my first and only common red pole that I've seen was on a head of tansy with lesser goldfinch, pine siskin, and American goldfinch all in the same clump, all facing each other, which was really cool to see. Very nice. Uh, outside of the community gardens, there is the magpie forest, which is just a kind of a planted pine forest up at the top. And that's usually pretty good for owls and owl activity. And then you can just find stuff around um, Pullman. I would say campus is usually a mixed bag. There are definitely a lot of what you would kind of consider almost like suburb birds. So lots mm -hmm. of red-breasted nuthatch, lots of uh, mountain chickadee and black-capped chickadee, just kind of in the trees, house sparrow, house finch, song sparrow, just Buick's ran just all, kind of all over campus. If you follow along Paradise Creek, which goes cuts through downtown, 
mm-hmm. there's a lot of paths along there and you'll get a good assortment of migratory birds and flycatchers. Uh, barn swallows just like crazy one of my favorite birds out here is barn swallow despite it being so common because in the summer and, and late fall you have them by the hundreds and then one day they just disappear and they're gone and you wait and wait and wait and winter comes through and past through you're out hiking in the snow and 15 degree weather thinking about how warm it used to be with all the barn swallows and then you know the first one returns and I think when the first one came back that I was able to get a picture of it was just one barn swallow right outside my apartment. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware of on eBird, if you have a rare bird, you usually have to write a description. Mm-hmm. And I think the description I wrote for that bird was the boys are back in town because I was just thinking of the song, you know, I was so excited yeah. to see him. And it wasn't really, I mean, it was expected. It was still flagged, but it was expected. So I just attached the picture, but it was really, I didn't be, uh, I, w- I didn't think that I would be so excited to see them back, but those are kind of like the three main areas. And then there's really, just some like crazy spots in town where you really won't expect anything. And then one of the birders either from Moscow over the border, who's coming over or someone from Pullman will just say, you know, Oh, I saw uh, some crazy, I saw a Northern water thrush in this, in this bush. And it's just, you know, some bush on the side of the road in the middle of the neighborhood. It's really, I mean, there's a lot of trees here, which makes it a really good migrant trap. Of course, basically all of them are planted, but you can find stuff just about anywhere just kind of hanging out the wazoo arboretum could use some work i'll say that it's really pretty barren right now they haven't finished it the university of idaho arboretum over the border is way better but i'm i'm thinking that in the coming years that'll become really a major birding spot as well very cool so mason what's in your uh, first of all uh tell me some people who've been important to you in your development as a birder do you have any uh you know good friends or mentors who've been really helpful so this is the shout out section. Okay. Well, wow. Alan Grennan, uh, if you know who that is, he's a King County birder. Um, actually, when I started birding, I joined the Seattle Audubon Young Birders and mm-hmm. he led some trips uh, for that. And so I kind of got some experience with him as well as some other young birders that were on the trips. And it was just a lot of fun. And I think that I learned a lot from him about birding, especially birding by ear. And then as time went on and I became a better birder to I won't be humble about it to the point where I was skilled enough to kind of like have my name showing up places and, and kind of making my mark. Uh, I kept running into him at rarity chases. And since we knew each other, it, it kind of worked out nicely. Um, so it was always fun to, you know, drive out somewhere. I went out to find a, a rusty blackbird in King County and he was mm-hmm. there and he's like, Oh, I think I might've seen a common grackle as well. And so we spent an additional hour and I re- relocated his grackle inside of a bucket it was just standing in a bucket. So it was really, you know, I learned a lot from him and it's really great to keep birding with him. Uh, there are definitely some young birders that have made a mark. Alex Sowers um, was also a really great young birder. And actually one of the people who with me created one of my longest running jokes in burning, which is not even that funny, if I'm <laughs> honest. Um, we were taking a van out for one of the, the trips. We were going to, to Grace Harbor with the young birders. And for some reason, we kept joking that every bird was a Montezuma or a Pandola. And it, there was really no comedy behind it. The, the comedy really just came from the fact that we kept saying it. And, you know, it went on, we camped there. It continued the next day. And we went to this, I think it was like sewage ponds in Hoquiam. And there's a little trail out there that you can hike. And there was this sign that had pictures of Wilson's warbler and yellow warbler. And like, oh, these warblers migrate here. 
And they come from Latin America where they're with other birds, such as Montezuma or a Pandola. And there was just a picture of one on the sign. And we all, everyone on the trip freaked out because we had been joking about it this whole trip completely randomly. And there was a picture of it. So actually, when I go to Costa Rica, that's one of my main targets is I'd really like to see it to bring the whole thing full circle. Well, learn the call. They've got a big, yeah. loud call. And when you hear it, it I can't remember. But it's really weird and unique. And you'll, you'll find them from the call. Uh, plus, they're gigantic birds that fly right overhead. You can't miss right. them. But still, very cool. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't stop laughing at that. It's not funny, but I can't stop right, laughing. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Uh, so, Mason, uh, thanks for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. If birders want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, they can email me at masonmarinphotography at gmail.com. They can also go to my website. If you just look my name up, it's one of the first thing that comes up uh, and there is a contact box that they can reach out to me at, or if they cool. use Facebook or Instagram, they can message me there as well. Terrific. Well, that's exciting. Well, thanks for teaching me a little bit about burning Whitman. I'm definitely going to be making a trip out there to uh, pad my Whitman County list. And maybe I'll hit you up when I go out for some uh, uh, up-to-date uh, advice, but thanks so much. I appreciate you being on today, Mason. You take care. Yeah, you too. Have a good Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thanks for listening to the Bird Banter Podcast number 111 with Mason Marone. I had fun talking to Mason today. Really fun to hear the energy and enthusiasm of a young birder. He's really become quite accomplished in a short period of time and has some great research planned. Learned a lot about birding Whitman County, and I'm excited to get back out there. I really do want to get up on Steptoe Butte. It sounds like such a cool place. I can't wait. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll put up a blog post on birdbanner.com as usual with more information about Mason and some of the research he's doing and some of the things we talked about today. If you have people you'd like to hear as guests, let me know who you'd like to have on the podcast. I'm always looking for interesting people to talk to. Uh, So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day.